KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. I am Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about housing, politics, and discourse. To the program, we have back on Daryl Owens, who's been on the show several times before. He's on today. We're talking about this year's housing production legislation in California, the good and the bad, and also digging into some stuff he wrote about uh, vacancy rates and the discourse around vacancy rates and the facts about vacancy rates. So we'll be talking about the housing politics first and the vacancies afterwards, but without further ado, uh, here, let's uh, just get into it. Daryl, Daryl, welcome back. Hey, what's up? I'm on Zeddy.com. Wow, that's no promotion, uh, but that's great to hear. Great news. Yeah, I'm just, um, well, I don't know if it's really a promotion or not. I'm just actually deleting my account. Oh, great. <laughs> Speaking of promotions, you can't uh, say that people should uh, go to Substack, but you're on Substack now. Yes, um, you're going to want to talk about my Substack. We're going to talk about that, so you better get right over there and uh, start reading it. There's probably already new articles by the time you actually read this, um, but the breakout article was on vacancies, and we're going to get into it probably soon, probably now. Yeah, do you want to talk about that first or talk about what's going on in the California you know, housing world uh, at Sacramento or Berkeley or whatever? You know, what's more important? I think your Substack must be the most important thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Sacramento too. politics matters a little bit too. You know what? Let's go with the Sacramento first. Let's be, uh, you know, nice to the legislators. We put a lot of hard work in that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's let's start with Sacramento first. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say like my take is, you know, there's kind of just a few major bills. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose on the housing production front, we've, you know, talked on the show in the past with other, you know, what the California, uh, you know, tenant, you know, situation is, uh, and, you know, generally it's bleak. They're kicking can down the road. We'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, the production bills this year, more or less SB9, SB10, 1401, AB 1401, uh, anything else that really kind of belongs above the fold or is that kind of it? No, I think those are the big one. Oh, there's SB8. What was that again? The extension of tenant protections for rent-controlled units and demolition. Oh, SB yeah, so 330 SB, is it makes SB yeah. 330 last longer. Uh, yes, which was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of hate this. Every time we have this nice big bill or something, it's like, great, we did it. And then it's like, we realize, oh, you got to extend it uh, you know, a little bit on the road or it's going to disappear. And that terrifies me, honestly. Yeah, it is terrifying. Um, I do think it should just be permanent. But at the same time, it's like, it's, it's really interesting to me how... In the whole discourse about this, I'm going to get into this discourse shortly, that kind of came out after SB9 passed, um, especially out of Los Angeles, how most people didn't even seem to know SB8 exists. And it sort of um, reveals to you, to some degree, how committed people actually are to the values they preach. Well, I mean, are you saying... Are you saying they just don't care about SB330 or because, like, it's well, an extension, I mean, extensions talking, are a lot less? I mean, it's not just that. It's that, like, you know, just casually... You know, the Yimbius legislator with a lot of Yimby assistance uh, passes one of the biggest bills, um, one of the biggest tenant protections in California history, which is protecting renters, particularly, you know, precious rent controlled units um, from demolition. It was a stronger ordinance than most rent controlled cities even had. And it has done wonders in places like, for example, Mountain View. They were losing like annually hundreds of rent controlled units. Yeah. And they admit, yeah, it's because of this law that like all that's now come to a complete stop. And well, it's a lack of regulation. I mean, it's just kind of the the if you don't do anything, a lot of stuff's just wiped. Cause that, I mean, that kind of is how the market works when you don't do anything. Uh, you need to build, and what happens? You kind of wipe away 
the naturally affordable, like most vulnerable renters. And that's not how you should be doing it. And it takes an intervention. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, they target the rent controlled units in part because that's where cities zone for multifamily housing. Um, So you don't let any multifamily housing go in the owner occupied single family zoned areas. So people end up displacing people to build apartments. And so, I mean, all that's now come to a stop. I've seen SB 330 used to protect not just occupied rent control units, but vacant rent control units that just literally disappear um, once a developer smashes them down. Uh, We have Yimbys essentially enforcing housing law throughout the region. And it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, you you look at places like Los Angeles, where the nonprofit complex really loves to brag about how great the TOC program is, Transit-Oriented Communities Program. Um, but that program still permitted the like demolition of rent control tenants in Koreatown, right? Yeah. And it was only after, you know, Yimby Bill SB 330 comes out that things like that are no longer legal. So it's funny to me how little talk this gets in the sort of housing discourse world. In the real world, it gets a lot of talk because, you know, a lot of tenant groups use it to like, you know, save their skins and stuff. But it's funny to me how in the housing world, this gets no attention whatsoever, when it's like such a big deal. It's a big deal. I mean, like, I think like there's some like on the margins, people were at, okay, some units, if you're already developing it before it hit, they might still be in the pipeline and like, but like really once it hit, it just did its job. Like it's an amazing demo protection across the state. And I believe uh, the new version, I think makes it even stronger as far as like weird loopholes that I never really quite understood. Yeah, there was some, there were some really goofy loopholes that we don't need to get too much into, but basically there was this like moronic, because they used the term homes as plural, there was arguments that this did not apply to projects that were building single family houses. So if you smashed on an apartment building, or more commonly a duplex or a triplex to build a single family home, HCD yeah. was like unironically like, oh, well, I guess it doesn't apply because this is a home, not a homes. So therefore- uh, And it never go, went to court, but it was a big fear that it would, right? That yeah, someone would do that? Yeah, yeah. that was it. Um, there, there were some other changes in there too. I think more flexibility was given to- uh, I don't actually can't, I don't want to say too much because I actually didn't verify this was the final version. There was some flexibility given to nonprofits if in cases of like uh, uh, subsidized housing uh, so that they could do replacement units easier. There was actually some EMBs who didn't like that. Um, but I mean, other than that, yeah, all for-profit developers. You know, one of the things I was really sad about, I lobbied really hard for it, but I failed. And when I say lobbied, I mean, I contacted legislators. Um, I did, <laughs> I'm not an actual lobbyist. Um, one of the things I was really disappointed in was... <clears throat> I tried really hard to get, you know, uh, Senator Skinner's office, who was the author of the bill. Um, thank you very much. She's a great senator. Uh, I tried to get her to include the University of California and other like public entities. Um, mm. But it, it was quite clear that, you know, that wasn't going to happen just because the bill was actually quite Herculean to get across. Yeah, it looks like everybody voted for it. Like, that's how it looks. But behind the scenes is not how stuff works out at all. Um, and so, you know, you, you made a joke about this, right? And um, I forget what it was, but when SB9 had passed, when we eliminated single family zoning oh, and a yeah. guy here in Berkeley, yeah, and a guy here in Berkeley was like, well, I mean, it passed with such a pretty strong margin. I mean, clearly it wasn't close. And then you, you posted a clip to uh, the death of Stalin, um, where I believe, who is it? Um, well, so the acting general secretary is like, yeah, the presidio. passed. 
And then everyone's kind of looking at each other, and Khrushchev's like the most reluctant, and Barry is like happily raising his hand. Everyone's kind of like signaling, oh, pass unanimously. Right? Like that's kind of how voting works in the politics and the political. No one wants to be embarrassed up there. Everyone wants to have a. Yeah, Nancy Skinner, like, I I don't want to like say, like, I am like a fan of politicians because, you know, politicians are politicians, but like, if there's anyone I'm close to, like, she does great bills, and like, also, she's a really good at like getting her bills through yeah you know she she's really she's a master legislator i mean she's been at it since she was you know a young socialist activist in her early 20s at uc berkeley um so lbj of the sacramento yeah she's she's been around for quite some time um so yeah she's 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 just always doing great uh but yeah i don't want to stand any politician in particular Uh, again i was disappointed not to get uc in that because right now uc is like evicting families um in berkeley to build these extension houses which like hey i'm all for more dormitoriums right like i'm all for that i just don't understand why they got to go bulldoze people's houses to do it it's just not necessary or if you want to bulldoze them fine but on university land no it's on public uh sorry it's on private land the uc buys it's like a public developer um the uc buys the land and then builds like huge um, student high rises, which I'm all for. I don't even mind the fact that they demolish old apartment complexes. My problem is that they don't follow relocation and demolition rules. Hell, I don't mind. I'd love to have my apartment complex smashed and replaced with a big UC dorm so I could get some nice modern unit with all the modern 21st century living conveniences. I'm totally down with that. But like, I don't want you to just evict me and then tell me to skedaddle, which is effectively what UC has done. They've evicted these tenants in downtown Berkeley. And just told them to like piss off. Here's uh forty thousand dollars or something. It's, it seems possible. Like yeah, just do all what you need to do with UC stuff, but just make it. You know, just put it within current demo protections. That that that, that is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, because the way it works is you have to file like so. The law is written so that it only applies to people who are technically filing like demolition permits. And since the UC is its own entity, it doesn't go through municipal permitting process. So it's yeah. not like it explicitly. Um, exempts public agencies it just does so implicitly because if you're not going through a municipal permitting process the only people who don't do that are public agencies then it doesn't apply to you um not to get too sidetracked though that's just one really incredible bill um with one unfortunate failure of mine to have changed uh but other than that i mean yeah so i'm very happy to see that bill go through um yeah. senate bill nine is of course the big uh top ticket item that uh everyone's it's been talking big... about yeah uh well i'm big I, enough for I, the I, white I house like... to talk about it Sure. I just feel like it was like a year ago we were talking about essentially the same bill failing at the last minute because of like just weird bi- It's like I feel like we just we wasted a year to get like the same stupid bill out there. Well, it know? wasn't the same stupid bill. It was the same bill um, with a ton of weakeners, I would say. Uh, that's not a real world. Um, it, 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 it was the same bill, but it had a bunch of provisions added into it that I think Kind of made the bill a little um, subpar, in my opinion. Um, so it was they couldn't just eliminate single family zoning or replace it with two family housing. Um, you know, the realtors, I think, did the biggest change. So the realtors came in and said, um, because the thing about the realtors is they're kind of funny. At the state level, you know, they always feign to be very pro housing and stuff. And um, they sure. always say because because they use it as a crutch against the, um, the, the, the tenant movement, which is like, hey, we just need to build more housing to solve these problems. And I mean, we do need to build more housing. So whatever. But the thing is, rank and file realtors hate EMBs and hate building more housing. So if, like, go, go in the realtors. I mean, if you I love reading all these realtor tweets. Hey, if you're a renter, you're going to like be evicted. Don't you want you want to buy a house <laughs> like they yeah. love the fact there's scarcity and there's a in there's a, you know, a, a seller's market. 
Right. So the, yeah, they're not they're not really getting off their butt to pass any major. The realtors are almost always absent um, at most, and that's probably because again, at the state level, they can't be seen opposing supply based housing policy because they use that argument to oppose tenant groups. So they want to say with any credibility, they can't oppose it. But rank and file. They are hardcore NIMBYs. And so what happened with SB9 was the realtor said, okay, um, here's our additions to it. Um, basically, only in the situation uh, you can turn your house into a four-unit building um, if the owner is living there. And the reason why this was done sort of rhetorically in a very funny way is it was sort of pitched as an anti-speculator thing. So like you know, some overseas scary foreign investor or, you know, Blackstone wouldn't be some, uh, what's the term, absentee landlord far away, sure. right? But what it was really about, quite obviously, is very effective anti-renter provision. So, you're, mm, you're, yeah. you know, you, you, when you do, when you make, when you mandate it so that it's only, you know, someone has to live in the unit, you're kind of ensuring that, like, this is not going to be an all- renter complex, right? And that's what the realtors care about. They care about making sure that homes can still be sold and they don't really care too much about the actual anti-speculation part. There's um, like two questions to me, which is, okay, the end result, are you going to have a bunch of renters in a place versus some renters and one you know, homeowner? I'd say, okay, that's the end result. And honestly, yeah, I mean, I prefer all renters uh, because that's like my, my theory of power. But the other question is, how does this affect when people are going to develop? Because if you are like, I'm going to sell off, move across you know, town, get a new place, but okay, I'm, I got a nice paycheck and now they're going to develop it. As opposed to, I technically am still living there. Does that mean like you're going to have to like get an apartment for a year and then you I don't back? know. Like, the, I have no idea what the practicality of this is. I, I, I don't see this in practice. Happen. I don't think they're going to do it. Yeah. So I don't get it. Like, so if I'm a homeowner. And I build three units on my property as part of this whole, you know, fourplex thing, like, or sorry, double duplex is more technical. Um, well, then what? I, I'm not allowed to leave. What if I build it and I'm there at the time of construction and I just want to leave? Oh, you have to be there for three or two years, right? Two or three years. I, I forget. There's a time limit, yeah. but you have to be there for like a couple years and then um, you can leave. I guess that's not that's not too crazy. I guess. Um, Sure, but so, I, mean, so, I just, so, I, I just so wonder silly. about like during construction, like just I, it, it's oh, hard. You can be there I during, people I, just want to like clean their hands and say, okay, I'm done with this parcel. I got a new place. It's supposed to like I am like currently living in a place being constructed for a year or two, and like it's gonna be a mess. And I mean, it effectively means it probably won't be built at scale because I mean, I don't. I mean, the big developers don't care about small infill projects like this, anyways. But when you're talking about like, if you compare developers out in California versus Texas, for example, like a lot of those Texas developers, they're building like townhomes and duplexes and um, yeah, usually townhomes and duplexes, like in their kind of sprawly developments. Um, whereas here in California, it's almost always single family homes. And it's interesting that like, I guess if you were to try to scale that with a big developer, they couldn't do that. They could they, they would yeah. they would just they would just have to do I guess just duplexes, um, but they couldn't do like a quadplex version of that because it's it's effectively only for homeowners who want to add three units to their property, um, which isn't a bad thing. But I, I just think the whole mandating they live there. Hey, if, if some guy you know moves away and, and owns a house and turns his house into a fourplex, I don't I don't really see how that's an anti 
I don't see why that's pro speculation, but that's just kind of the silliness that we have to deal with. I mean, I'd say at scale, I think there's going to be ADUs. I think there's going to be ADU industry, like drop everyone's backyard. You get an ADU, you get an ADU. But I don't think everyone's going to turn the house into a duplex. And when you've seen like Minneapolis and everything, like they've made quad, you know, duplex, quadplex stuff, but like it doesn't really happen at scale in practice. No one really does it. Yeah. And I think we should be realistic about that, that like at least under the current permitting rules. I mean, well, here's the difference though. I think Minneapolis isn't ministerial approval. I, I'm sorry. I think oh, okay. it's just um, standard a, a permitting process. So one of the key things about SB9 is that it's ministerial approval. So mm. if you are in a, a parcel that is not in a high fire zone or whatever the environmental regulation is, um, then you can get a 90-day, essentially a 90-day approval. Um, you don't have to go through city council and all that to turn your house into a duplex or one of these weird double duplex quasi quadplex projects. Um, and I, I mean, I don't, we haven't actually seen any other area try that. So would it mass result in changes? Probably not. Um, but I think it would probably result in more change than had it not been included. Hmm. And I mean, and back to your other point, I really wonder if there's going to be like weird ways. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to cheer for track development at all, because honestly, I don't think that California can really afford on track development. But just in general, are they going to somehow build quadplexes with some sort of like, oh, you sell it ahead of time, so there's officially one homeowner? I don't know, but it's weird. We'll figure it. Out. <laughs> I'm curious, but honestly, I'm not even that that excited. But okay, you know, people pass something. You know, shows some sort of some sort of some sort of bill being passed. Yeah, I mean, at least we got rid of single families. And although, to be honest with you, like it's good to finally have this narrative out. There is a possible downside, though, that it makes people too comfortable, and now they're going to be like, "Well, we just got rid of single family zoning. We have to wait to see what happens, right?" Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, the whole point of this was like, and I and I'm, I say this as the guy who's kind of you know really been pushing for family housing in Berkeley. I'm not pushing that because I think that's a major solution to the housing crisis. I just think it's common sense, um, a sort of incrementalist thing to do. Um, it's just frustrating. You live in a place with so many NIMBYs and fanatical anti-housing um, people that like ultimately even something as basic as four family housing gets treated like it's SB 50, right? SB 50 was big. That was a serious thing. Yeah. That, that would have SB actually. SB 50, SB 827, good, good, yeah. like radical those, bills. Those would have, that's a bill that scales, right? That's a bill that yeah. says, okay, we're trying to zone to really solve the housing crisis. Um, that was the bill that did, you know, like four or five story housing at every transit stop and um, allowed for um, unlimited number of homes um, at the current height level um everywhere else that was a pretty great idea you know yeah. that was like okay that's just that's a place that's actually pretty serious it never made it to a single senate vote so obviously um, got close every time you know it got it's, it got it got tied slightly closer but you know um hopefully we can try it again but like I mean, there's always excuses i mean you have excuses because of oh it's a covid year we have no real time for a bold you know bill and then also it's a you know gavin got himself recalled year you know and like He's, you know, he's certainly, I think it took a lot of energy out to do something really dramatic. What do you think is going to happen with the recall? I, I'm not a betting man. Throw your numbers down. Oh, dude, you got to throw your numbers down. I you mean, can't I, be, I, you can't I, be I, a I, pundit. You can't be a pundit and not throw your numbers down. Because I, I, if think you don't bet, I think he's going to squeak by like bet, 54, 53%. 53%. Okay. Um, yeah. I think 52%. Yeah. Ooh, even closer. 
Uh, and here's a real question. Are we going to get rid of our dumb recall after this or fix it in some way? <laughs> like, uh, if- I don't know. I mean, I'm certain we will. Maybe if Gavin, you know, is done at the French Laundry, he might come out and fix it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because I mean, it's like, for- I think this is a new playbook. It's just like every time, why not recall the governor? Well, uh, I think that these are extreme circumstances in which, you know, this is probably the most efficient maximum time for a Republican to attempt a recall, which is that the shutdown is unpopular to some degree um, among a lot of working class people and because they've all the lost economic opportunity. And so a lot of them are probably looking for excuses to recall. But they were starting this before COVID. It wasn't like it was a bill. It's like he like he loves the illegals and he doesn't respect Prop 13. We got to recall him. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And also he's doing a bad job with the with, with COVID. Like it like that was just a like a nice thing. They were able to kind of reframe it as opposed like it was just kind of a goony, dumb recall to begin with. No, I think the thing about Gavin is so here, here's the reason why I think he's going to get recalled. I'm sorry. Here's the reason why I think there's a high probability he could get recalled. Um, one, the shutdown just is unpopular among like rural and Central Valley Californians um, sure. who are pissed about the lack of economic opportunity, um, are pissed about the fact that they are, you know, bore the brunt in many respects of the shutdown um, and they're much more blue collar jobs and uh, are also pretty conservative and moderate in politics. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is polling seems to suggest that Hispanic voters are more inclined to vote for Gavin or sorry, vote for the recall than they are against. Um, It's about like 50 50 split right now, which is pretty Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, And there's a lot of interesting theories as to why that is the case. I think part of the reason is I don't necessarily think that Latino voters in general have as strong a um, and I don't mean this in a sort of demeaning way it was just kind of just saying it matter of factly they have as strong as a commitment to the democratic party as say other um non-white groups do in part because that history just isn't there um Mm. so you know you talk about black people their um allegiance to the democratic party kind of extends back to like the civil war right not the civil war but like when we say the democratic (laughs) party (laughs) no well i mean yeah let's get into a fight with dinesh because he's totally wrong on this um But like, man, come on. Are the police really doing this right now? Can you hear that siren? A little bit. It's not it's not blaring, but I can hear it. But it's so, so annoying. It's so annoying. You guys, you don't need every damn cop siren blaring out here. It's some old man who fell. Come on. It's just oh god, they pissed me off. You have to we cut need, all this out. We need we need podcaster friendly siren rules, you know. No, what we need is a quiet room, but I live in a city full of nothing but old houses. So sadly, I can't get any quiet. Um, One of the many issues with the housing crisis, you live in a city full of old houses built, you know, 50 years plus. So here's the thing. Um, The Democratic Party, black people tend to vote Democrat because that goes all the way back to technically on a technicality, the civil rights movement. But what it really goes back to is voting for liberals since the Civil War. Right. Sure. So these groups, these liberals have always had a strong organizing base in black communities and it's very black centric approaches to sort of minority outreach by the liberal party, whether that's the Republican Party pre civil rights or that is the Democratic Party post civil rights. Um, but no such connection really exists with Latino voters. Well, in who, California, they say like classic narrative is the Republican governor like from the mid 90s threw his weight behind the bill to defund all government services for undocumented immigrants and like the Hispanic community in California. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they say like that's what turned them like against the GOP. But is that fading? Um, I don't. There's a couple of reasons why I have a I mean, there's probably some truth to that. 
Um, I do think that Latino organizers who, who are part of the Democratic Party were just much better in tuned in California than they were in other states. But it's worth noting that like Texas has a considerably high Hispanic population similar to California. Um, but also they're just much more voter suppressed there. So to mm. some degree, it's kind of curious to see like because the answer for why Texas was never a blue state was they just suppressed Latinos from voting because um, they have the like the low some of the lowest voter turnouts of any state in the union. But for uh, for Latinos and I guess California must have better organizing. But at the same time, I think that there is a whole host of like cultural aspects. So you have a large portion of it's interesting because at the same time, even though more Latinos are identifying as people of color, which is historically not really been the case. Um, there was, a, you know, Latinos were kind of split between those who I think passed as white and those who didn't. If you look at the 2020 uh, if you look at the 2020 versus the 2010 census, and we talked about this on you know Twitter, huge shifts in the number of Latinos who have switched from identifying as white to identifying as people of color. Hmm. And so a lot of people thought, okay, well, they're just doing that because we're full anti-white. No, I think in reality, I think they're just more comfortable being part of their identity in the sort of traditional era of uh, white assimilation politics is largely faded. But That's at the same time, at the same time, a lot of people, a lot of immigrants come to America trying to aspire to whiteness and the Latinos, in part because of the sort of national discourse we've had, don't feel the need to do that. Right. You know, the Irish, and the Germans come here and they're like swarthy people. Right. And they're like white Negroes. And then yeah. now now they're you know fully white. And it, it, so a lot of people come here and try to aspire to whiteness and assimilate unless you can't do so, unless you can't pass. Um, and I think that in part, the huge shift in Latinos identifying as people of color is largely due to the fact that, you know, you don't feel like you're inclined to do that anymore. Yeah, the, the, the also, melting pot paradigm is just faded. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting to see, you know, both in the previous election and in this election, um, you know, Latino voters increasingly swing Republican. Still, of course, majority Democrat, but in both the, you know, the Trump election, a lot of Latinos in Southwest states voted for Trump um, and people's. I mean, but then you also have like Arizona, not. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of interesting local politics here. I, I think the strategy that kind of works to some degree with the Texas GOP is they don't play too much into the anti-Latino thing as much as the California GOP does. And that's why that's the California GOP. Say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the take too, right? Like, it's a true take, which is that like California GOP ran on like pure like Tucker Carlson politics, and basically like nullified themselves um, into non-existence. Whereas like I think Texas tries to play it a bit easier, and and not so crazy on the. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear Texas politicians speaking Spanish, for example. For example. Yeah, I think you can um, maybe say that like you know, California has kind of a, a more racially heightened or kind of like you know a heterogeneous mold of how to you know, but whereas like Texas is still the classic melting melting pot kind of routine. Yeah, and 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 not only that, but like I think Texas in particular, you know, it's just there seems to be a lot more outreach to uh, some Latino. Um, cultural instincts that are more conservative, such as their uh, Catholicism, um, or, you know, a lot of Latino families are conservative. But the, the thing is, uh, you know, most people of color would probably vote Republican, um, or at least a lot would vote Republican if the Republicans weren't like blatant racist, right? Like if you sure. take a black person and a white person in America, I mean, the, the entire Republican strategy for eons has been to marginalize like black people until Latinos came along and then Latinos became the effective target. Um, but like if you take away race 
you know, black voters are pretty conservative. Black voters are not extreme social liberals by any stretch. They might be supportive of public programs. That's, that might be true. Um, but I mean, we saw with things like gay marriage, for example, in California, you know, black voters voted the least in favor of it. So it's not like people of color can be pretty conservative, but they don't vote conservative because the way the conservatives mobilize white voters is by being racist, because that's always been the thing for white people. That's gone back since forever, which is um, they don't care about economic issues. They just care about the fact that they're better than people of color, even while they're poor and impoverished. So, yeah. you know, that's it. That's the thing. We're getting off topic, though. This is yeah, it's a, a, it's a very broad it's about kind of the entire racial, you know, sociology of American politics. But I think I think that's definitely has something to do with the Gavin recall. I think a big part of it is. Not many people are disciplined to say like, oh, you must support the party with its message of vote no. I think a lot of people are just like see a lot of razzle dazzle and the average person doesn't like Gavin because he kind of sucks. So, you know, that's I think it kind of goes down to it. Who likes him? You know? Yeah, no one. No, no one's, you know, enthusiastic about Gavin. Yeah. But I, I do think it's interesting that just so many Hispanic voters in that poll said they were going to vote for recall about 50 percent almost. I mean, that's that's wild. Um, and it really it I, I it's probably because most of them live out in the Central Valley where uh, those politics reign supreme, and they probably bore the brunt of the shutdown. It's not like public yeah. programs and public services have been great. Unemployment's constantly stuck. Rental assistance has not been spectacular. Um, we're not as bad as New York, but you know there's a whole host of problems. I don't I don't blame people for just being mad at Gavin. So everything's every part of politics. You can't say like oh fix you know go to the the fixed part, the working part of politics, and not the bad part. Like every like everything's broken. So I, yeah. I, I can't blame someone for being nihilist. You know, I've seen nihilism and it's like, hey, you can just press a button that makes people get panicked. I don't blame them. You know, it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, <laughs> that's politics for you. Uh, but back to this uh, SB10, SB10 passed, SB10, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, production within a local control framework. It's not super dramatic, but it's whatever. Yeah. Um, so basically what's important about SB10 is some of you may remember that Alameda had a uh, anti-apartment provision called well i don't remember what it's called but we tried to repeal it called measure c and uh it would essentially repeal the ban on apartments in the island of alameda well it failed uh but now if the city council wants to just zone and and just kind of say effort to that moratorium um they can't right yeah that's all they don't have to go through a huge process and everything they can just do it uh so yeah. it, it it gives city council the power to nullify um anti-housing moratoriums by the electorate yeah, I guess I can't. I can't get too angry if something which is like it, it won't change stuff, but like massaging all the really goofy hurdles. Like, yeah, that's good stuff. You know, you and I think another stuff. thing too, and I think it's kind of part of a grander equation here is you had a lot of cities that need to zone for their housing element. And that's yeah. do, that, that's due in two thousand twenty-three. That's the big and, mover, right? Yeah, and the thing is, we already saw what happened when you're like Huntington Beach and you say I'm not going to do it, you just get sued. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the, that's happening. And then now you're going to have SB10 come in and say, you can just zone without going through a whole bunch of environmental review if the zoning is kind of logically sound, which makes sense because multifamily housing actually reduces carbon emissions relative to single family homes. So um, I think what will end up happening is you'll have a lot of communities that will kind of put their feet in the ground and not do anything until the deadline. And then they're going to have to invoke, you know, the provisions in SB10 to do their immediate rezonings. Um, once yeah. ACD cracks down on them, yeah. So I mean, that kind of brings it to the last thing, which is AB fourteen oh one, but also CEQA in general. We've just learned uh, you can actually like have standing or whatever to say CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, can prohibit more students going into UC Berkeley. Like yeah. that's something you can stop. But if there's more and more 
cars being parked in new buildings like seek was powerless to stop this you know it's like it's so yeah weird. that's so stupid uh so, boomer judge boomer uh uh boomer uh applicant yeah Bo- uh, just boomers all around so what's interesting about the uc thing is there's some credit to the argument by the anti-uc people and i i are gonna get mad at me for saying this but i think there's some credit to it um cal U- uc berkeley i shouldn't say cal because that means uc berkeley <laughs> um sure uh uc berkeley and all the other ucs have drastically expanded enrollment in the last couple of years um, well beyond what they said they were going to. This is because parents want their kids to go to UCs, right? Yeah. It's 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 pulling a whole new generation into the middle class. It's providing us some of the best research in the world. UC Berkeley is pumping out tons of climate research every year. And it's how so, it's supposed to work. It's people want to go to college. UC is this nice state college. It's supposed to give people a quality, affordable education. Yeah. And so people every single year the admissions and rejections letter comes out and like 90% of kids applying to UC Berkeley get rejected, um, which is like much higher than it's ever been in the past. Tons of people come out and be like, hey, why didn't my kid get into Cal? Why didn't my kid get into UCLA? Why didn't my kid get into Irvine or Davis or or Santa Cruz or whatever? And so UC is like, okay, we'll just start enrolling kids. And that's good. I mean, they're giving people an education. Uh, But at the same time, you know, because they gave these erroneous uh, enrollment projections, now it's so out of sync with what people expected. So I do think it's important to somewhat hold the UC accountable because of what they're doing, in, like I mentioned earlier in Berkeley, which is they're trying to rapidly build student housing. I'm just going to try to bulldoze people's um, you know, tenants' homes to do it in some cases. Uh, that's not okay. But at the same time, uh, you should never have enrollment caps. Uh, the idea that the UCs should have been subjected to this and that they're basically going to give out more rejection letters than they intended to, thanks to this freaking homeowner in Elmwood, Berkeley, that is horrible. That yeah. is, in, in many respects, a moral failing because it's so ironic to me. So many of these UC haters are themselves UC alumni who went way back in the day when it was much easier to get in. And sure. now, like, you, you're, you're depriving and foreclosing an opportunity for many young people to get an education. That to me is just so despicable in, in so many ways. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you see students by your little uh, Berkeley Brown shingle and that pisses you off. You're like 60 something years old. You already got your degree when you were in your 20s. Uh, I, look, I'm a Yimby. I believe everyone should have the right to live here. But if you have a problem with people living here, and you have a problem with students, don't live in a college town and don't live oh, south of the campus. Like, hey, yeah, the weirdest go, people. Why do you live? You're 60. Go live in a retirement community if it bothers you so much to see students around. I think you should live here. But if you have a problem with it, then skedaddle. Go. But they won't. They come here and they they just like hog up. Op- it's something they just love doing it. It's like an entitlement thing. They just love hogging opportunity. Makes and then he goes alive. and these same people go around and then and, and, and block apartment complexes and stuff in Berkeley because what they're going to say is, well, no, we want students. We just want them to be housed in student housing. Oh, OK, so do you support any upzoning? No. I just, like CEQA in general, like if it's like I, it should be a tool for like the good kind of degrowth, which is less like pollution, less, you know, hey, don't put up a new coal plant. Don't like put anything that really is actually harmful. Don't but reactivate actually, highways in SF, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but like, if you really want to say, like, we want some things to grow. And I think having UC Berkeley grow should be like a societally good thing to have stuff grow. It's, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it is. But CEQA, CEQA gets used almost always against good things. 
So yeah, you want to build an sucks. apartment? Sequa. You want to add a subway line? Sequa. Yeah. Years. What is it? It costs a billion dollars to plan for another BART tube um, between Oakland and San Francisco. I can almost not really like a, a billion for planning alone. That's insane to me. How is that possible? But Because like, all the consultants, all the yeah. schematics, all the environmental review. We already know public transit reduces emissions. We don't need to yeah. do this. But at the same time, hey, you want to have free parking on the weekends? Mm, no sequel for that. Yeah. Oh, you want to you want to turn a highway back on? San Francisco closed a freeway. You want to turn that freeway back on? Yeah, no sequel for that. That's just that's so stupid. Hey, you want to enroll more students so more people get a, a, an opportunity to have a better education? Yeah, we're going to need a sequel analysis on the impacts of uh, students getting educations. Yeah. That's okay. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> extreme and they go like ab 1401 is a fact we have a bunch of local mandates like it's mandates you must build parking and like it feels like it's like that just chugs on and no one is stopping it and yeah it's like a really good bill about just gonna throw it out and it just died in appropriations in the senate uh and you know senate president you know tony atkins has would not stick her neck out to to save it so like, yeah. it just sucks. It just sucks. I mean, that's a, a total unseriousness uh, from the California legislator about doing anything to solve the climate crisis, the housing crisis, even piecemeal stuff they can't do without three years. We, we spent almost four years now just trying to get rid of single family zoning. And we did it, you know, in the most like milquetoast way possible. And they're still complaining about it, but they couldn't let it go all through. They had to make sure that we still mandate parking near transit. That's so stupid. Like that's such yeah. a, that's such a slam dunk, but they can't, they can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. And, and, and man, we, we got to talk about the whole nonprofit consulting class in that bill. Yeah. We talked about that a bit when uh, Derek Sagehorn was on talking about the letter from, you know, uh, Western center and all this about these people, man, I'm Awful. so I'm, I'm done. Like yeah. uh, just it's it's just pure just justify my job. I'm a PhD loser who's got tons in debt, and I have to negotiate with every single developer on the behalf of low income communities. It's just so dumb. And uh, oh hey oh hey uh, hey I'm Daryl. Uh, can you provide me any examples of parking being voided for community benefits? Well no, uh, but it's it's like it's so stupid. It's just status quoism. So many people dedicated to status. We got to get rid of these lawyers in Sacramento. They got to go. We need to get rid yeah. of these consultants. They need to go. They are draining our municipal budgets. They are screwing this stuff up. And I don't even know how much they actually mattered. I'm pretty sure suburbanites were probably mostly responsible for killing 1401. But the fact that those. It was Portentino from Pasadena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Portentino. He's from like La Canada Flint Ridge or whatever that stupid place is called. <laughs> like, like, seriously. It goes out there and just like gives them rhetorical cover. He, they give the right wing nut jobs rhetorical cover every single time. What's weird? They, they made the bill like they made like every single argument in the assembly and all the Western centers like, oh, this is going to be extremely regressive. And like like it, only the GOP voted for it. Yeah. Know, only the, only the Republicans it. vote for it. Yeah. I mean, like they're the only Dino people. Yeah. And then and then, you know, it goes to and then Portentino kills it. And it's like. I don't know, like, this is just classic conservative politics, but it's also just really depressing because, like, this should be easy. And so far as, like, I think we need vigorous, we need to take out every parking spot we have. We need to remove it. And, like, this only gets rid of mandates for new buildings. And, like, this is a no-brainer. It's it's sick. So um, there's a L.A. tenant union member who sure. wrote this article in Knock L.A. I, I want to read this. Because I've I read this, I read some of that, yeah, yeah. Um, this is kind of I I guess supposed to be like insight into the thought 
process. So let's just, sure. just try to go through it. This is a quote. I'm not saying this. AB1401, for example, could actually help fuel speculation. If passed, it would eliminate parking requirements in new developments in neighborhoods with low rates of car use or that are near transit. Parking minimums make building housing costly and should be eliminated in certain situations. So in mm-hmm. what situations should they not be eliminated? Like, sorry, let me, let me, let me, let me go keep on reading it. However, AB 1401 has zero affordability restrictions or protections from speculation. By making it cheaper to develop valuable properties near public transit, it gives investors with pools of capital somewhere to invest at the expense of low-income transit riders who may be displaced in the process. And then she says, the bill has been placed in suspense file and is unlikely to pass. However, it could be resurrected next year's legislative session in a similarly harmful form. Harmful. So, like, I mean, the state's literally on fire right now, but, oh, wow, parking. So, I I guess the logic here is, and I had to read this, like, 15 times because I don't get it. I don't understand how, by making it cheaper to develop valuable properties near public transit, it gives investors with pools of capital somewhere to invest. They're investing anyway, and here's, like, it's just very weird. Like, the investment money goes places. If you want to say this is all gross and bad, you need to change it. I mean, honestly, I'm the belief it's about channeling the investment. But of all the places to channel it to, the idea of channeling it through, you know, dense housing near transit is really the best possible thing you could be transiting. Like, it's just people get really angry, the idea someone somewhere maybe making, making money, money investment. that's yeah. yeah it's just so goofy like i just don't like, people I, like, are making money every day you know i don't understand how so i guess the logic is to them if you build new buildings near transit that could displace low-income transit riders no, no acknowledgement of sb8 no acknowledgement of um the fact that they're already building near transit because that's what cities encourage them to do i mean la literally has a transit-oriented communities program so, I mean, like, if you're talking about, okay, so you're talking about, like, renters near transit, homeowners near transit. If you're a renter near transit, you're seeing spiking rents around. And this is, I mean, I would say clearly rents are spiking because of the fact we're not building enough near, you know, so it's scarcity near transit. And, yeah, they're getting priced out. We need to fix that. If they're rent controlled, uh, you know, they may be having stability. and But we know that there are protections against displacing people who are, you know, protected in any case or just renters in general. Uh, and then if it's a homeowner near transit, I would say, you know, I think, I mean, they are at least going to get a really nice payout from this. And I think, honestly, we can't have a bunch of bungalows, you know, really small buildings right next to a transit hub. That just not is not feasible. Man, investors had nowhere to invest their capital until they went into the business of housing, a notoriously hated thing in California. And they went into the most expensive variant of it, too, which is development. I mean, if, if I were an investor, I would just buy a single family home and sit there because bills like this keep failing. And I know that my price is going to keep going up. That's what Blackstone uh, like, BlackRock are doing. That's what BlackRock the, the, and the Blackstone actual, do. <laughs> that's a, the actual investors are investing in just the, the stuff that doesn't change. So in reality, and I'm kind of dropping the narrative voice for a minute. In reality, uh, Minneapolis eliminated parking requirements and rents in new buildings basically dropped like 200 bucks. That was it. Cool. Um, I, I don't recall there being any super speculation zones any more than there were prior. Um, but it's kind of interesting because this also this also concedes the argument that parking requirements inflate housing costs. So they're admitting that that gets passed on to tenants, parking requirements. But I guess it's the price that needs to be paid, I guess. Yeah. 
I don't I know. Like it's just it's very. I mean, the mo- the thing that people are most afraid of is the fact when you're a lazy city that has not put together a decent plan to deal with street parking, and you just have to be a free for all. Now your street parking is going to be more crazy. Hey, there's a solution for it. Don't have free street parking. Manage your street parking. That's what every reasonable city needs to do. And if you can't do it, you shouldn't be in the business of being a city. But I mean, you know, Berkeley. Berkeley did get rid of park minimums locally, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, and I think also some limited parking maximums as well. That's yeah, we did. Yeah, we went. We went. We went way over. We said hell no, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not only are we not going to mandate parking, you can't build too much parking. I mean, that's where we need. That should be the default. And I don't think that stuff. was strong enough either. It was like I think the parking maximums were zero point five spaces per. Uh, or I forget what it is, but basically you can't build more than like. So basically, there's no requirements, but if you do build, um, I think it's more like you. You can only build like a parking space for like half the units. Sure, I mean it's a it's a. St- I mean I just think having some sort of structure for parking maximums is great because if you just do if you just get rid of the mandates, banks are still conservative, developers are still conservative. They're gonna play it safe and put parking. So. Yeah, developers love parking. Number one, because it weeds out people who need to actually build housing who are cheaper and can build it cheaper. Um, and we'll have cheaper housing, right? There's an yeah. example of this happening out in Deep East Oakland where like a group of formerly homeless people are building some housing units and the city of Oakland's mandating to build parking spaces. They don't have the money to do it. So logically, you know, they're just gonna get effed over until someone, I guess with enough pressure will avoid it. Um, the big developers, they love it. They build gigantic uh, parking garages because they don't believe people are gonna take transit either. And uh, that's exactly what happens. So this idea that developers love voiding parking, it's so goofy, it's like not in the real world. That's what's well, frustrating you, me about California. People just don't live in the real world out here. And this is where anti-YIMBYs are right, which is developers are not your friend. You know, developers don't want lower rents. They want to keep all the little hooks in place, which keep rents high, and now will continue developing. And yeah, I mean, I think the developers who just, this is the way we do things here, they want high parking, you know, uh, rates, because this is going to be just the gold standard. Oh yeah, high high rents, and that's going to just make things work as opposed to we really need to put them on the rails and find developers who are going to be like bargain basement it's like yeah you know this, these rents are low but we make it work by cutting out everything we don't need i don't know like rents being low is it's it's the goal but it's hard you know it's going to change everything i mean it's really hard with extremely high land costs and then if you put all this stuff on top of it such as two years of permitting parking um, requirements and all this stuff, tens of thousands of dollars per unit. Um, then obviously, you know, you're not going to have cheap housing. So well, I'm, I'm glad that people like, fess up that th- these things inflate costs because they're then we're, then we know what the problem is. We don't have to sit down because we don't. And there, there's a there's a reason. I think this is misguided saying that like, oh wait, if you actually have savings because of parking minimums, this will just be reflected by a higher land residual. So you'll pay more up front. And I think you're not even wrong to some extent. I don't think it'd be 100%. Uh, so I'd say, like, I am a bit skeptical that the overall savings won't kind of come back and just go to landowners' pockets in the end. But I just think it's a good thing to do. No, I don't think spaces. so. I think, I think you'll, 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 you'll split the difference. It'll help. But I think that landowners so you're saying, will You're saying landowners back. will just recuperate the um, savings from reduced parking requirements? I think to some some degree. People, so. pe- yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, people say this. I've had Yimby's debate me on this. I don't think I haven't seen this to be substantiated. Like everyone says, oh, well, if you give people more ability and flexibility on properties then the property's value goes up. Um, the problem with that is a couple issues. One, I don't think that most people buying properties are doing it to develop housing. So it's not given that the land price will reflect that. 
That's very two, true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the main uh, thing is what's what's kind of the baseline? What can you develop with very easy permitting, no questions asked, and like that's going to be kind of what the overall land price is going to be. Yeah, I mean, it will. If you do spot zoning, where like all your city basically has no multifamily housing, but this one little block here has like 15-story high-rises. Well, of course, that might more so reflect the ability to build only because sure. the only people competing for those parcels are going to be developers. Um, but if you spread high density zoning out, there's nothing special about your parcel. There could just as easily be some realtor buying a property or a landlord buying a property than it could be a developer building something there or someone just buying it for its use. So like the Patrick Condon argument of like upzoning and all these easier things makes a land prices more expensive. Number one, I haven't seen that just by looking at zoning maps. Like sure, the high density stuff, that's true. But like if you compare single family zoning parcels versus like fourplex zoning parcels, they really don't have much variation in price, at least from my I example. I think you can make a theoretical argument with completely competitive and rational optimizing, you know, agents within this system. Yeah, they could, but in the real world, people are kind of lazy and stupid, irrational. They don't like people. Yeah, don't landlords really aren't optimize. rational. Landowners aren't rational people who are like looking at calculators. Like people think they're so smart. They're not. They make yeah. money in this industry because people are dumb and and let bills like this die. And so they sure. can just keep speculating forever and ever and ever and, 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 and get infinite price appreciation. We used to make a joke all the time. You know, the people who go into real estate are generally the C students in school. Oh, yeah. Right. Like it's not it's, 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 it's not an industry that's like super smart. Like people are like, man, Blackstone's so evil and, and, and sneaky. They figured it out They're like freaking a chimpanzee could have figured that out. Oh, yeah. I live in an area where no one's building housing. I'm just going to go speculate on houses. Duh, I love, like I love to like this is what I saw one person just link all these posts It's like a realtor was saying boy they added more density per unit we're gonna make four times as much money and this guy who was like an anti yim said like all oh, the realtors admitting it they're gonna make four times as much money it's like no realtors are the dumbest the, people ever the realtors an idiot and they don't realize they're gonna lose money the realtors are dumb as like nails it's that's funny. weird that they would say that too because that's not what the realtors talk like on next door on next door all the realtors are opposed to multi-op zoning because they know that they don't want people to live next to apartment complexes well i think this was like a private message with a realtor and like but it's like okay that doesn't prove anything because they're oh. stupid <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah they're just dumb i just i mean it's not a, it's not it's it's like being in real estate is kind of like like being an expert in astrology like it's not some hard science there it's 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 just pure yeah. guessing but it's so long as you have economics on your side you know where this is going to go eventually yeah which we is, need, uh, like go to singapore hdb folks i think those people are actually like like they are not dummies there you know we need smart realtor people yeah you know, real estate people uh but okay anything else that you know i mean as far as the, like last couple half a year or something berkeley you've done social housing overlays affordable housing overlays or just kind of like you know other stuff well it's in the pipeline yeah yeah i mean like there's been action uh how's that all been you know um the affordable housing overlay doesn't come back to a fall but it will come back um, the goal is to give uh, ministerial approval and uh, high density uh, upzoning to 100% affordable properties. Um, so I, mean, I think it's a really great idea. Affordable housing cool. developers love this stuff because they don't have to spend two years uh, letting money basically dry up trying to get permitting. If you're mad that affordable housing is always pitched at high AMIs, you should really support something like this because we've literally had the state auditor come out and tell us, you know, what is it? Uh, quite a few billions of dollars worth of bonds lost at the state level for affordable housing because local jurisdictions didn't approve affordable housing fast enough. Right. Yeah, I think like it's, a, that's, it's a way to do it at scale. It's, you know, it's, I mean, I think Cambridge had a very similar thing. They got like 350 affordable housing units in a year, which I think by their standards was a big improvement. So like it, it you know, 
It's I heard it wasn't a big improvement, but I mean, I could be wrong. Was it? That. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a Cambridge I mean, it, guy, by but... itself, I mean, subsidized housing is still subsidized housing. So it's not like you're making a massive difference. What you're just doing there is ensuring that the public dollars are used effectively and efficiently um, and aren't caught up in the bureaucratic business that we reserve for private development. Yeah. I mean, it's just you need to like, if you want to build a machine that makes housing, you have to build it right and you know it's it's tough you know but it takes work uh, and social housing is in the pipe also i think uh uh bart you know it, that that was happening you know just just very recently you know they're finally moving that's going forever yeah and the worst part about berkeley taking forever to do their bart projects too is that um they're basically holding up all the other tod projects so every other city that's like competent and rational and doesn't have a problem with like seven story buildings near them um basically have to wait for Berkeley because BART doesn't have like infinite planning staff. They got like staff focusing on one project at a time. So you got staff going through this extra long process with Berkeley because Berkeley's special and special Berkeley uh, has to feel uh, hugged and loved and um, has to do all these performative meetings. We already know what the outcome is going to be. And uh, we basically just go there to shout. And then it's just such a huge waste. Of time. I- I'm actually really like the like original, the original BART Berkeley stuff is they threw a fit to make sure they got a tunnel. The hey, hey that was even better though because at least berkeley did something and paid for it right like berkeley was like i want a subway bart's like no well berkeley's like fine i'll just pay for one and then they did like here it's it's performance we, the, the outcome's already known because state law makes it clear you have to do seven story zoning at each site so we're going to sit here and waste our time pretending like that's ever on the table when it's not no developments change the positions stay the same the yimbies grow stronger um, and, uh, the outcomes are always the same and it's just like, it's just there to do performative meetings. It's just so annoying. So you're saying like up in like El Cerrito or something, they'll just kind of like the people. Be yeah. Del Norte there. is waiting there. Like Del, yeah. Del El Cerrito is super chill. They're just going to be like, yeah. yeah, of course we're fine with housing at BART. Even in the Ritzy areas, they don't care about it that much. Yeah. We're fine with housing at BART, but sure. Berkeley's got to feel special, even though they're going <laughs> to get the same result, but just crappier. That's it. That's all it is. So we're going to sit here and waste our time with this, but I think the BART process actually jaded a lot of people in a good way because um, now they realize what a waste of time process complaints are. Like, yeah. I this mean, stuff I think is so goofy. You're going to have growing pains. I mean, I think we're going to need a lot more kind of TOD at scale. It's going to be kind of ugly out of the gate. So I, this has been... It's not it's not pretty to look at, but I understand. You know, it's it's going to be better next. You know, every every time. Well, some of it looks it. nice. It's, it's not as beautiful as Singapore HDB, but like, you know. No, I, I just mean the nice. process is ugly. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, <laughs> sure. But uh, uh, anything else in Berkeley, or like uh, we can switch over to talk about your Substack. Um, well, let's leave Berkeley for a while. Uh, I'm exhausted with Berkeley. So yeah, yeah, a banger out of the out of the gate for your Substack. Talking about vacancy rates. Yeah. That's always yeah. a guaranteed banger, isn't it? Um, well, that's all everyone talks about, you know. It's but like it's on I think Twitter, that is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everyone starts by looking at like it's like I think you're complaining that like people talk about it, but they talk about it with one quick soundbite and then they kind of move on or like yeah. So it, that's something I talk about a lot. It's like the Yimbies don't have a good soundbite for their sure. um, vacancy arguments. Sure. Like you, you say, you say like, hey, there's eight times as many vacant units as there are as homeless people, for example. It's really hard to say, no, there's not. There's X many vacancies for X many. You can't really say that. It's really hard. Um, the fact is true. I've seen a lot of Yimbis try to dispute that it's not true. I don't know why it's true. It's true everywhere. Um, did sure. you know that in Vienna, there's 30,000 vacant units, but only 10,000 homeless people? And that's social housing Vienna. It's, it's, it's must a, be capitalism. It's, 
Yeah, must be a neoliberalism sneaking into the social yeah. housing proletariat. Yeah, I mean, no, no, so I, the, class, the, the classic soundbite is like five times a minute, or you say like 18 million vacant units in America and 500,000 homeless people. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I think I think the classic like rebound is like, oh, so you want them to move to you know the rust? Yeah, that, that is one of the good Yimby soundbites. Yeah, it's pretty good, but I think it's, it's true. Like even say like it's, I mean, sure at the national scale that makes sense because we, we don't live in one big city, but. Like you say, like even at the state level, and really at even every major city, something still holds to kind. Like you, you break down San Francisco, and if you take it at face value, the kind of there are more vacant units than uh, than homeless people is still true even in San Francisco. Where is uh, that not true? I, I think like maybe Palo Alto. I don't know, but there's there's ghost homes. I don't, I don't think know. so. Well, there's not homeless people because they run them out of town. In well, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, there, there's like probably two homeless people in Palo Alto. There's probably 5,000 vacant units. So 5,000 yeah. vacant units, two homeless people. Oh, there's your stat. Yeah, there you go. Do you want to talk about just kind of like how you broke it down or any other thoughts of, you I know, mean, what, yeah. So I think the problem with the vacancy units, and I think there's something that a lot of Yimbies are kind of effing up with that article too, is it's a great article. I get all that. You're not supposed to just send it to people to read who are your enemy, right? That's not how <laughs> arguments work. You know, oh, hey, go read what my friend wrote. Like, I hate it when people do that to me. Oh, hey, uh, here's what some idiot wrote on some loser uh, opinionated blog. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to yeah, if digest you, the information. The worst thing is they post it and, they, and they, they tag you. Like, it's like, uh, it's like, you know, yeah, like, what, like, like dude, what am I supposed to? Yeah, oh, yeah, the Pokemon thing. We talked about that before. A lot of people on Twitter use me like as a Pokemon. Like, they're, yeah. they're an argument like, well, here's I do the thinking. Like, dude, I don't want to argue with your crap. You have the yeah. arguments in your in my sub stack. You digest those arguments, and you're supposed to articulate them. You're not supposed think- to uh, substack for them to read it. They're not going to want to read it, right? Yeah. Like so, you're working. You're and, working in the argument factory, and you're creating better arguments for people to use. Not like don't just copy. Yeah, paste. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. It's not. A, it's it's not supposed to be a footnote citation you use to everybody to go read. You know, yeah. it's not homework. It's supposed to be your knowledge. Um, sure. But anyway, so I, I mean, the, the point of my article is like, look, vacancies are complex, and they're not all the same thing, and um, the image people hear of, I mean, even vacant housing is a bit of a misnomer. It's factual in that it was vacant at time of survey, but that at time of survey parts always left out of every single time this statistic is invoked. And, and I start off my article by pointing out all the times I've heard it. I've heard it at protests. I've heard it uh, talking to friends. I have a lot of leftist friends who, who hear this statistic all the time. I have leftist friends who use this statistic all the time. Um, that this is very common on the left to use the statistic and vacant at time of survey is the number one point to remember. Because people take that statistic and be like, well, there must be some unit just sitting vacant forever. There are those units but that's like overwhelmingly not the vast majority. So one of the things I did in that article was I broke down the vacancies by duration, which thankfully we have thanks to the American housing survey by the census. Yeah. And so what we found in the Bay area is that like 60% of vacancies are just vacant from like zero to under six months, sure. which is standard vacancy time, right? The Vancouver vacancy tax kicks in at six months because everybody recognizes most units get filled within a couple of weeks, but there's some out there that have to get like their units repaired. If some old apartment or the tenant's been there for a long time, we're going to get that stuff fixed and then you get it back on the market. That should probably take no more than six months, right? And I think um, this goes to like the, the kind of bigger moral point, which is like, why does this piss people off? I think some people are looking like, some people are just losers when it's like, I don't want to build, oh, here's a good stat. But I think a lot of people have a really reasonable and good emotional reaction to it, which is, like, it feels wasteful and it feels immoral. And it, yeah, it, it should feel immoral that anybody's homeless. 
uh, and then we allow this to happen. And you, you say like, yeah, it's like if this food waste, it feels wrong and bad that people are hungry and we waste food. Uh, but like, I think if you really talk about it, what is the reason people are hungry? It's not because we waste food. It's because of deep inequities and, in, you know, how people have access to resources and, and just, you know, income, wealth, wage, everything. Well, so, yeah, it's, it's not as stupid as sometimes YIMBYs make it out to be. So, yeah, you, you mentioned the fact that I talked about working in grocery where um, I would throw food away that was like perfectly good. That was like a day over expiration. And there's sure. like hungry people outside. Um, we don't have a food shortage in America. We do have a large percentage of the population that suffers from food instability, but we don't have a food shortage. So, yeah. I mean, 50 percent of Americans waste their food. Um, we overproduce tons of food, you know, with corn subsidies and soybean subsidies. We have a huge yield of food. We could feed the world probably 10 times over. Like, that's yeah. not really a problem. Um, in, in we don't sense, have a food shortage. Like it's horrible that people are hungry when we don't have a food shortage. But on the other hand, it's a good problem to have when you have the slack of, okay, we could feed everybody. Like that's a, that is a good Well, start. yeah, so that's the difference, right? But see, that's the difference. So food is not like housing. Uh, leftists always love to remind Yimbys that, and they're right. Food is not like housing, right? Sure. The difference between housing and food is the government subsidizes upwards of 40%, you know, soybean and corn crop yield. So we yeah. overproduce tons of food through large part federal subsidies. Industrial so in that policy issue, that pours milk down drains whenever you make yeah, much of it. We pour milk yeah. down drains. We throw bread away day over. We we have all this food. We just toss. Um, Americans buy tons of food and don't eat all of it. We absolutely have a food allocation problem, not a food shortage. Sure. We do not treat housing anywhere like food at all. And it all yeah. starts with production, right? We do not federally subsidize 40% of all housing in the United States like we do food. Okay. Yeah. We do not subsidize developers to overbuild housing like um, agricultural um, industry overproduces food. We, it's not the same at all. We are producing some of the least amount of housing we've ever produced in our history, recent um, history. We have some of the lowest vacancy rates since uh, post-World War II. Right. I mean, uh, we, we, we do not objectively have an overproduction of housing. We do sure. objectively have an overproduction of food. So if you want to talk about allocation and all that stuff with food, that makes sense. That's why I say, you know, I, I get where that anti-capitalist sentiment comes from, because with food, it really does seem inequitable that people are starving out on the street while there's dumpsters full of food just sitting there. And, and, and that's in those dumpsters full of food is the same way people feel about vacant houses. But there's a couple problems with that. Number one, as I just mentioned, empirically, we just don't have an overproduction of housing. Higher household overcrowding than ever before. Vacancy rates lowest since almost World War II. Um, yeah. uh, housing production rates like half of what it was in the previous decade. Uh, a huge labor shortage. Um, like, like we don't have an overproduction of housing. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's places so that's, where you've that's had that's famines, one. and you still have you know major inequity. You export food during a famine, and like that's a worse right. problem to have, you know. So, th so that's number one. We don't have an overproduction of housing. Two, yeah. people are conflating food waste with like vacancies there's the same in, in feeling but it doesn't have the same intent throwing away foods forever <laughs> yeah you're throwing it away forever whereas yeah. if a unit is vacant and on the census reported vacant it's being used for a whole multitude of reasons you don't really know off the top of your head the most common reason is it's just on the market and it'll be rented within a couple weeks upwards and maybe a couple months 
right? So those are just yeah. tenant to tenant vacancies. If it is vacant and it's not being rented, then highly likely it's just in between leaseholders. So when I go buy a unit, like I'm going to go move to Santa Cruz next year, okay? I'm going to look for a unit to be vacant, right? Can't move yeah. there if the unit's not vacant. I mean, I could, I have to live with roommates. I'd rather not. I don't want to live with roommates. Sadly, a lot of people have to live with roommates here. This isn't Tokyo where they're reducing their roommate population because they build so much housing. No, here we, we just get more and more roommates ever, ever, and ever. Kind of the unit ideally has to be vacant before I get there. Otherwise, yeah. you know, and if it's taken during the census year, then it looks like it's empty, but it's not. I just went there a week after. Um, the, the vacancy is a snapshot. It's not, it's not a permanent tracker that, you know, dynamically changes. So It'd that's problem really number two is like, like, if you get it down to zero, like I, like, I know someone who just bought a place in London and I think there's like three people involved as a purchase and they had to like have like three closings in one day and like people had to like move out, like, like not many, like that's a per, like you can make that work if you really want to, but it's, it's, it's stressful. Like it's hard. Well, I talked people, about a, a 0% vacancy rate. The only place I've ever heard that happen is the Soviet Union. And I'm pretty sure the Soviets were just lying. Um, there's mm. no way their vacancy rate was 0%. It was probably almost 0%, um, probably round down to 0%. But what is, but, but I mean, and, I, and as you see me on Twitter, you know, people think I love the Soviet housing system because I've extolled how great it was under Khrushchev. But the truth is, is that the Soviet housing system had a lot of problems too. And the 0% vacancy rate was not something they applauded. It was something that was embarrassing because people couldn't move anywhere. You moved on, uh, you moved on permission of your local government official and most people got rejected. So they- I wonder if they count that. Cause like in like the late fifties, like it's like they would have a multi-room apartment. Every room would have its own family. So if yeah, every room case, had his family. Yeah, so if that's a case, like, does it a vacancy mean like all rooms were empty? Of course, that would never happen if every room was a family. Yeah, or yeah. So every room. unit, a vacancy counts as a unit. So it's possibly sure. had zero percent because there's technically a family. Someone's probably living in every single bedroom, um, whole yeah. family. Um, but like, I mean, there's a lot to be proud of and to admire about the Soviet housing production system. The way Khrushchev um, basically nationalized housing production, did uh, prefabricated housing, um, basically skipped right over local uh, permitting processes to get all of his housing units constructed. The Soviet Union built more housing than any other country within a span of 20 years. Right. That was it's, it's a huge achievement and it's something all Yimby should be really impressed by. Uh, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, yeah, there's problems with the Soviet housing as there is with anyone. And the, the fact that they had so little available housing is a problem because you couldn't move anywhere. Right? There's not a good way to live. No one wants to live that way. It, people, We deal with that here um, in California where people live in like rent controlled units forever and ever and ever. Many of them want to and they should be allowed to, but many of them can't afford to move anywhere else. So they're stuck and they live in overcrowded conditions. And eventually they're going to just kind of shrug their shoulders and just move to Texas like everybody else is doing. Right. Yeah. Like that's the end. That's the end result. So, I mean, yeah, that's another problem is people don't understand vacancies just going from tenant to tenant. And that sometimes it's just waiting for the person to get there who hasn't gone there yet. There are a lot of bad vacancies like vacation vacancies and seasonal vacancies. Not all seasonal vacancies are bad. Like if I go to a cabin out in San Mateo County, of course, it's going to be reported vacant while, you know, it's not the summertime. Um, but if there's people using like a vacation house or a vacation condo, that's obviously a problem. Get rid of the mortgage interest deduction, um, impose taxes on vacant houses. Those are uh, vacant vacation houses. Those are all really great ideas. Um, and there's, the of course, the biggest category season in like like every season's bad in San Francisco. Like I don't know. Yeah, what I don't season. know. I think I think the vacation seasonal. I think it's like people like some rich guy lives out in Concord. He just likes the urban life sometimes. He just so like he just a goes to his town. condo in Soma. 
That's what yeah. I've heard. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, and then the most common vacancies are not, sorry, not the most common, but the other remainder are just others. And that's literally anything from uh, units sitting around empty for decades because they're like burned out and destroyed to some empty lot that barely has a shed on it still, uh, you know, that they're kind of saying, okay, this is technically a housing unit. Um, that's sure. considered vacant. Um, a lot this of vacancies are, and this is, this is very common. This is very, this is all in my neighborhood too. The most common form of vacancies I see that's not market vacancies are just housing units that were in like single family homes when they were temporarily turned into multifamily a family moves in doesn't rent the unit out anymore so it just sits there as like a basement or something that's a very common form of other vacancy which is just an unused housing unit or you got like a adu garage someone used it as a unit back then a new family moves in they use it as just their own unit or whatever and so it's reported as vacant like that's very common too people think other vacancies are just like empty detroit style houses sitting around all over the place that's another funny thing too is like we talk about the vacant housing problem it's such a californian perspective that like we have a glut and that that's considered i mean it's a, there's a lot of other parts of the country that don't like their vacant houses and are demolishing them as we speak <laughs> right yeah like if you go out to detroit like it's very popular out there to demolish vacant houses. Like it's, it's just cool. It's popular. Whereas here in California, we're always so obsessed about making sure it could be utilized. And of course that's a reflection of, you know, demand, but as people like misappropriating the vacancy statistic to sort of conflate all these different local aspects. Yeah. There's a lot of vacant houses in Detroit. That means nothing for the national population. You can just stick to your city government because they probably already have a lot more vacant houses at the city level than they do at the national level. So you don't need to use the national statistic. Um, but the vacant houses are pretty complicated and they're not just houses sitting on like, what are you going to do about some vacant basement or attic unit? in some person's house. I mean, you can tax it and that'll certainly probably get them to either. I mean, I'm for that. So the thing is when that article came out, yeah, like a vacant bedroom tax would be like, I think incredibly useful. That's a little radical. That's a little radical. Say it's like, but also, I'll say is, I mean, it'd be very useful. I think it'd be incredibly unpopular. I'd be for it, but yeah, honestly, it'd be very unpopular because well, as soon as the kids move out, yeah. As soon as the kids move out, you know, as as homeless people are in the street, is it really yeah, moral we allow people to have uh, like empty bedrooms? I'd say, you know, it's like you have to make trade-offs between what radical methods you're going to have and how <laughs> much you're willing to abide with horrors all around you. Right. But so, like, I mean, ultimately, all, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and ultimately, the problem is just kind of wrapping it up. Most vacancies are not just sitting around doing nothing. Most of them are just short-term vacancies for under five months. And so you're just misusing the vacancy stat. Like, we don't know how many are available just to acquire. And also something I kind of regret not going more into, it was kind of implicit, but I didn't go into it as much as I wish I would have, how impractical it is to suggest that the homeless should just live in vacant units. So some person's vacant basement unit, like what are we gonna do there? We can tax it, sure. What are we gonna do, spend money to try to buy the house? Eminent domain is fair market value. So yeah. you're effectively buying the house. Like, yeah. I mean, it would take a while and uh, it would cost a lot. And it's a lot of money to just get like one basement unit that they're going to probably destroy or rent out by the time you do anything about it. There's another frustration with mine is like vacant housing policy really has nothing to do with housing the homeless. Sure. I mean, like if you want, I mean, if you look at what people are actually doing, working in homeless, you know, you know, services, they're looking at practical, you know, like people doing like Project Room Key, looking at a site they can actually acquire, making per unit, you know, cost at scale to have like a transitional shelter and other stuff. Like people who work in these spaces, like they can have like long-term visions, short-term visions, medium-term visions. 
But like, no one is going to say, hey, stop everything, protest a new apartment, and say that we should just, you know, commandeer vaguely, you know, I don't know. Like, it's like, you can do stuff. Like, if there really is, uh, you know, room in your budget to acquire, uh, you know, dilapidated, you know, building, go for it. I just don't, at scale, this is not this at-scale solution. This doesn't scale. Also, when you buy a lot of these old buildings, you don't have to rebuild them. Like, I used to do this when I was an affordable housing developer. I was responsible with like acquiring um uh when i used to work at an affordable housing company i had to deal with a vacant uh public housing complex in oakland and you think that's just like you just acquire the building and then the homeless move in the next day that shit is going to fall apart in the next quake that's not safe you have to rebuild the whole thing how much per unit uh did it cost to rehab uh it didn't because it fell through oh how much you think it It would have if it happened uh probably five hundred thousand dollars per unit that's like the cost of it. Really, that much? As much as I mean, new? the cost nowadays is seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. But that's like a—is that even for a rehab? I thought a rehab was like, like uh, that's no like a new rehab. Build. Well, no, because it was structurally unsound, so it was likely it would have had oh, okay. to have been a teardown, um, or it would have required like major seismic retrofitting. Um, it might have been anywhere from three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand. I mean, it's hard to ballpark it just because it never got to the stage where uh, yeah. the bank decided to actually go out, and the, the pro forma kept changing all over the place. So um, if you really but, uh, squint and, and take a step back, it really isn't about the units which are out there. It's about resources such as access to kind of build on parcels and the amount of labor costs and other resources to build it. So in the end, like. It's about overall how much access to different land and, and, you know, resources and labor can you actually build stuff at scale? Which ones are in current garages? The fact like every time you have low density, you, you have effective vacancies of inefficiency of using the existing land, you know? It's like, yeah, if ever, in the long run, everything's a teardown, you know? And that's really interesting. So the White House came out recently and, and, and heralded, you know, Berkeley and Oakland and the state of California for eliminating single family zoning or proposing to. Um, and okay. it actually dogged on Los Angeles pretty hard for its land use policies about golf courses. Um, mm. And that was, you know, a very classic example, which you were describing, which is like all this suburban land is going to complete waste while there's like thousands of people sleeping out on the streets. Like, what's that all about? And the Biden administration saying that, man, you know, you're really screwing up when the Biden administration talks. <laughs> I don't know if he's a golfer or not, but yeah, that's that's funny. I think I think realistically, you know, we can do a lot at the local level, but a lot of this is going to take federal investment. And um, the fact that they're largely absent from the conversation is a huge problem. Uh but yeah, I mean, I mean people deserve is... a right to safe, clean, accessible housing and buying some burned out Victorian is not going to house the homeless like a real talk. That's basically the point of my article. And of course, no, I think the biggest point of my article was um, trying to really get a better sense of what the actual housing demand is, because yeah. so many people say vacant divided by homeless. It's like, OK, but housing demand doesn't stop at just the homeless. Right. Like there's people living in over. And I don't even have a problem with people saying that if they just said that, but it is usually accompanied with also. And that's why we don't have a housing shortage. It's like, okay, so here's all the people we need to factor in people living in overcrowded conditions, people who have children and those children grow up, people who move and find a new job somewhere else, immigrants, refugees. Right. We're talking about refugees right now. Refugees. Well, how how dare you bring refugees into this talk about housing affordability? That's that's so. Oh gouge. my God, that's so out of touch. Yeah. Says nobody who's actually involved in ret- refugee resettlement. So by the way, I have an Atlantic article coming out on refugees. 
Um, oh. I did it. I've co-authored it with a son of a refugee, and I spoke to many folks who are involved in the resettlement program. Um, many activists, many uh, people who uh, give money to refugees, etc., about their experiences and housing affordability. Yeah, I'm sorry if you're some downwardly mobile genifier out in Brooklyn um, who's mad that uh, housing is related to refugees, but it is. Um, and the reality is, is that like you have all these stupid signs, and the State Department says your cities are not affordable uh, for refugees. So. You, it's a lot you, of, lot you of work you you're doing just would... to own these architecture podcasters. You know? <sighs> yeah, well, I mean, it's really not about them. It's about it's about actually yeah. normal people who like out there don't understand these problems. But they, they just kind of pester me and, and, and sort of, you know, basically yeah. nip at my heels. Um, but but, I, think, I think like you just talk about, like the, yeah, I think a lot of people have the vision in mind that like kind of a sensible good world would be that everybody has a little cottage and you live in your home forever and heavily like happily ever that after. That seems to be like, what a lot of leftists think. It's weird. It's it's cottagecore leftism, and they really think like no one is ever going to move. You're never going to move out of your parents' house, and then all the things you mentioned—people who are in trouble, who actually need to migrate for a lot of real reasons—and then on top of it, like you know, are we supposed to give them more opportunity? Are people supposed to move around? And just like, do we really like people move? We, people people want to move just they want to. Moves. Like, I don't want to have imp internal passports. You don't want to. You really want to live in the same place you're born forever? People want to move. Like, yeah. fuck all that. Fuck um, um, things like uh, uh, um, immigration and, and refugees and, and people fleeing domestic violence and people having children and growing up out of that and, and all the like and, and, and disasters and all these climate refugees we're going to have to deal with. Put all that aside for a minute. Yeah. I mean, what if I just want to move? Like, I'm sorry. That reeks oh, of capitalism, you know. Oh, that's a uh, uh, yeah, that's evil speculator capital. That's so goofy and it's unserious. And the good thing is, is we talked about this too. Like, the we like left bashing because it's it's fun and it's intriguing. And I, to be honest with you, I think it makes the left better. Um, you know, a I lot only, of the, I only bash idiots. I, I don't. Yeah, like I bash bashing. idiots. I don't. I don't even bash the left. I bash idiots. Right. That's what I was gonna say though. Like in Europe, this is not really a problem, right? Sure. So in Europe, like left wing groups tend to understand that more housing is needed to maximize mobility. Um, it seems to only, in my opinion, it seems to be more of a Green Party thing, the whole like vacancy trutherism stuff. But some people sure. tell me that's not true, that the Green Party is also pretty pro-housing too. I mean, well, most I of it's these- like, It's like the same kind of people are scared of GMOs. It's the same kind yeah, of thing. It's not natural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of, like a lot of the Yimby movement came from Stockholm, left-wingers who just wanted uh, smaller housing wait lists. Uh, you know, the SDP and all the uh, left parties in Germany are generally pretty pro-building more housing. Yeah, the um, Helsinki public housers are the yeah. Yimbies over there. Yeah, they're huge Yimbies. Vienna's full of Yimbies, right? Yeah. It's so funny. Like, only in the U.S. is this kind of weird, like, we can't build any more housing because we have vacant unit stuff. And that stuff just makes no sense to me at all. I think yeah. that's American suburbanite um, uh, uh, subconscious bias influencing people's philosophies and, and and theories i don't think that's actually coming from that i think it's I just think like you you know yeah. you're you're product of your environment and in america we we glorify uh very few houses at low density 
Sure. Yeah, I think it's. A, I mean, cottagecore suburbanism is a main is a big thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it is also numeracy. When you talk about people, don't look at the percentages of like vacancy stuff. Like people reach like it's like that seems like a big number, fifteen thousand. But like it's a like as a percentage of total units, it's a, it's a very small number. It's actually a really funny joke in my original article. I deleted it because I thought it would be too distracting. But I said I think it's a little weird that the same people who almost exclusively make reference to the total number of vacant units, um, but never the percentage, never do that for affordable housing. It's really weird. I don't, I mean, I just think it's a mixture of people. With affordable housing, it's 100% affordable and we don't care what the actual number is. Yeah. Right? I I think, I don't know how much is, like, I think a lot of that's explicit spin doctors, you know? It's they know what butters the bread and they kind of make some really good sound bites. What do you think is the spin doctor part? The the vacancies or the affordability percentage? Because I think the vacancies kind of, I think the vacancies are, I think the vacancies are earnest, but the affordability stuff is spin doctor. No, I mean, I think, I, I think, yeah, I think the vacancy stuff, it like, it sound, it is a horror until you really kind of dig down and realize, okay, you know, what is like, there is a, there has to be a natural slack in a city and you have to be realistic about it. Uh, I mean, you're never going to get down to 0%. Where do you want to aim? I, I'd say, honestly, if you want to say 7-8% is natural, I'd say maybe we can bring it lower. I don't know. I think with better clearing houses, you can bring it lower, but not less than 2%, you know, certainly I think 4% is ridiculous. Well, I mean, there are cities like San Francisco that do have a somewhat abnormally high vacancy rate, probably because a lot of vacation houses and stuff. That's why I propose things like vacancy taxes and acquiring vacant houses. I think these are all really good ideas. And like, so this was actually what happened. After I published that article, a lot of left-wing activists from uh, mainly the suburbs came out and said, Daryl, we read your article. We love it. We want to do a vacancy tax. And okay. so now you're going to see a lot of vacancy taxes come up and they're all like saying, how would we do this? Like asking me for like some kind of consultation on this. Um, so it's, it's the good thing about my article is since I prescribe like a lot of vacancy tax, I think it's a really good thing. And in Vancouver, it really did reduce the vacancies down. I think in some cities, the vacancies are way too high. They're just being used inefficiently. And we should like tax these parcels. It's, I mean, it's free money. Why wouldn't we do it? Um, I want to propose a vacancy tax in Berkeley. I think that we have too many vacancies just because I know it's a student town, uh, but you got to rent your stuff out. You can't be waiting for all these cycles and stuff. That's a, so I, I agree with vacancy taxes. I just don't think it's an answer to the homeless problem. It's not a serious solution to the homelessness. It gets conflated a lot, but like vacancy taxes and even acquiring vacant houses and stuff. I mean, all that is just like incrementalism, which is yeah, ironic because it's always people saying it's not, uh, it's us that are the incrementalists. But if your proposal is um, a finite number of vacant homes, I mean, that's, that's literally incrementalism. Sure. I mean, and I think on top of it too, like, okay, I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of details to figure out how you're going to implement it. I'd say step one, make a real comprehensive rental registry. If you don't have that out of the gate, then you're screwed. So in a lot of places, yeah, you I don't. Agree. So, and I, I don't know exactly because you, I mean, to do it right, right, you need to have a comprehensive rental registry in some sort of way to link that with what is everyone's primary residence in the entire world. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, one, the privacy issues are not, not negligible. Uh, I want I want weird you know tech utopians talking about rental registries and stuff. But I mean, get back to the thing question. Like I, I think there's a lot of like good faith reasons people can argue about how low it should go. But like the people who say right like raise the IZ and IZ inclusionary zoning is a neoliberal hack to begin with. Raise it as 100 percent. We need to have 100 percent subsidized, zero percent non subsidized. It's like. What this is just an unserious garden gnomes kind of like you know uh, just. 
Yeah, but I feel like those people are a little different. So I think that what's key here is a lot of people come into housing without much knowledge about it. So one of the things that's really effective is like market rate housing. That's such a very strong slogan. Of course, we know in the real world, it doesn't mean anything. 99% of people live in market rate housing. It's just kind of a statement that means non-subsidized housing. It's um, a housing but that when you, like anyone can get without special privileges. If you're just a, right, just yeah, a that's, slug, that's, a, that's all it means. It's what you can get. It's just normal yeah. housing, right? Now, yeah. I love how the nonprofit world invented naturally occurring affordable housing. No, that's just market rate housing. Okay. <laughs> like, that's yeah. literally what it is. Um, but, like, at the same time, it's like there's a lot of people out there who see luxury condos going up and they see homelessness increasing. And to them, they don't understand why these percentages of affordability are the way they are. I used to be that way. I remember when I first got involved in the whole Yimby stuff, I actually critiqued a developer. I was like, well, why don't you just make it all affordable? Right. And these are just kind of like, I mean, you know, it's, it's just kind of like common sure, legends. Pants. Yeah, right. And I don't think that like I, I, I try to be like willing to discuss with people um, why affordability levels are set the way they are, that the percentages aren't just something you pull. It's like how Americans treat gas prices, right? Like the president's supposed to just go out and pull a lever and make the gas prices lower. It's not how it works. Um, it's the same thing with housing. But like I get like we have to and I think this is something there's, I there's emphasize not this in my strategic article reserve of, of, of housing that the big. Tank oh, no, no, just- no. Yeah, we can't invade another country for housing. Um, But like, no, I I tell them all the time. And this was kind of the sort of takeaway from my article is like, it's fun to like bully and insult and troll people. But these are like your neighbors and these are people you're going to work with in the future. So realistically speaking, when people are sad and angry about the equity that I the inequity that I saw when I was like pouring out trash at the grocery store. You have to be willing to talk to those people and explain to people the realities of the situation, what they're seeing, because a lot of people don't know what they're seeing. Um, It's not, you know, this stuff is complicated. Not everybody's a housing walk. It's taken me years to get this stuff. And I change my mind all the time about things. As soon as new facts come out, I'm a flexible person because I don't I don't have some rigid ideological commitment to one belief. Um, When facts on the ground change, they change. I wasn't for vacancy stuff. Originally, I thought vacancy was a complete distraction. Now I think it could be a helpful incremental approach to building more housing or at least putting more available housing out on the market. um, people change their minds all the time when facts are presented to them. And so we, we shouldn't, people, especially Yimby's got to stop being so like crazy, toxic, critical and being like, oh, you don't understand this? Shut up. Right? No, yeah. it's like, here, well, here's how affordability percentages work. Here's how, you know, uh, social housing could work. Um, yeah, we do seem to have a system that's not producing enough low income housing right now. Why isn't the federal government stepping in? Why isn't the state government stepping in? Here's all these ba- barriers to that. Like the whole point is my whole article is, housing complexes are nuanced and i hate doing the whole nuance bot thing but they are and i I really hate people i hate it when people act like they're not or they're very simple they can be explained away with reading angles or uh freaking uh some libertarian screed like no there's there's pretty these are complex issues and you gotta treat them properly. yeah i mean to treat normies uh with respect talk to them i'd say there's a lot of people who are like uh who know better who are acting stupid and i think those people those people need to be taken down a notch. I think one more thing you talk about in the article, not, I mean, not to spend too, too much longer, is like, I think the way that like makes a lot of sense to me is the same way that like the unemployed, the army of unemployed reserve army uh, is like, it hurts labor. Uh, in the same way, reserve, like having a big bunch of empty houses, it hurts landlords. And having, you know, more vacancies is good for renters as far as leverage. Uh, and low vacancies is really bad for renters as far as leverage. You know, the lower it is, the more your landlord says, hey, look, there's only a few spots for you. Musical chairs are winding down. And there are, you know, distinct stats showing that, you know, higher vacancies, lower rents, vice versa. Uh, And then on top of it, uh, lower vacancy rates mean higher eviction rates. 
Uh, and that's really scary. And I think and not should... just higher eviction rates, but also higher displacement rates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that I mean, from like your people. local area. Yeah. And I, back in the day, I knew people who got evicted and they just moved down the street. Not great. It sucks. Evictions are bad and we should fight them. But yeah. you know, worst case scenario, I just moved down the street. Now you get evicted, you move out of state or you move sure. well out of your metro region. Right. Sure. And I think there's a good, I, mean, I think just in general, that makes a lot of like, I think the leverage angle makes a lot of sense, but I think there are reasons too. You can critique it saying it's the same kind of argument people would say to go against rent control saying like, well, if you put rent control, they're not going to build as much. Well, that's because the entire system is set up this way because when vacancy rates goes down, people get displacement because we have an unregulated awful system of private landlording, which hurts people. Should we bow down to that system and live under its logic? I, there's good arguments to say like no, but I, uh, but I think that in general, uh, whereas rent control is a good policy which helps people and is worth doing, driving vacancy rates low, I think in a lot of ways is counterproductive, certainly past a, a certain rate. And I think you're right. There's different types. If you lower the vacancies on pedotaires and vacation homes, that might just be pure win. Uh, but I'd say the parts that actually are listed market vacancies, that should be nice and high. And that's exactly the whole point, right? We want more market vacancies. We do not want more other, other. vacancies. We do not want more vacation vacancies. Okay. Sure. And we want more migrant housing too. So more migrant vacancies. Those are cool. Um, we got to be like, just pick, be is clear about like which vacancies. Temporary structures? What, what does that mean like, exactly? Mostly migrant housing is like agricultural worker housing. Okay. So it's, it's okay. Or also just housing for migrants. I mean, there's a lot of people moving into your country. I mean, Europe has a lot of this. Yeah, um, our, our underclass yeah. migrant farming system is so horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really bad. Um, yeah. And it, it sucks even more because, you know, there's a reason why United Farm Workers are huge EMBs, right? Mm, um, yeah. They always endorse our bills because they know that farm workers are getting priced out of the Central Valley, like around San Joaquin Valley right now, because basically the Bay Area is exporting all of its uh, blue collar workers to like agricultural areas, which is like just basically, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty bad. Sure. Um, and, and I know you're working on new takes on uh, downly mobile, upwardly mobile, uh, you know, pundits and everything. I decided not to do that. I might do that later. It's not a priority. <laughs> okay. It's fun to I mean, punch it's... down, but we got to stop punching down eventually. But I think it is. It is pretty funny. I mean, there is a sociology of like who fights who online. Yeah, usually I totally it's, agree. It's, it's it's very like high school cafeteria culture stuff, but you know, it's pretty. So dumb. the theory, the, the the theory I have is, and I'm pretty sure this is right is the most fanatical anti-YMBs on Twitter um, tend to have a very common trait, which is that they are usually downwardly mobile gentrifiers who are kind of like living like as poverty tourists um, in lower income areas and see themselves as like sort of the cool versions of their cousins who are the upwardly mobile gentrifiers, the techies, um, you know, all the people that went to school and stuff. And uh, those people are Yimbies and they're squares and they're, uh, they don't have radical thought and all this stuff. And it's just really, I feel like that's really what it is a lot of the times. Cause like, I know this is like all, it's always these like same characters that live in like West Oakland or uh, Brooklyn or uh, whatever the equivalent area is in um, LA. And it's always like, like, it's like, you're like a, you're like an overeducated person with a low income. Um, you're not going to be as successful as your parents and you know you read a lot of like lefty magazines and publications when, before you flunked out of school 
And now you like hate Yimbies. And Yimbies are these like square working within the system, upwardly genifier, uh, upwardly mobile genifiers. And so, yeah, basically left NIMBY is downwardly mobile genifiers. Uh, Yimby is upwardly mobile genifiers. I think it's true. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, everyone fights people who recognize parts of themselves in them that they hate, you know? Yeah, and of I course. Think, and I think it's like the people, people who are like the anti-Yimbies, there are a bunch of dorks who say, oh, the Yimbies are a bunch of dorks, you know? Like, it's it's projection of all yeah, these you're people. you're projecting. Like, everyone's yeah. a nerd. And, but these are the people, like, they've traded out their ambitions of kind of uh, filthy lucre for the clout economy. And, like, yeah, it's it's whatever. I mean, I honestly, I think there's a lot of good reasons, you know, to say that the rat race of upperly mobile young professionalism is, is, is a dead end. Uh, but, like, I, it is very, like, people who are gentrifiers, to earn your place in the club of not being the bad type, you have to, like, punch other gentrifiers, you know? That's how you right. get your... I'm not them. I'm not one of those. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's always that's always that's always the white per people thing and the and the white centric Eurocentric stories. No, yeah. I don't worry. I'm not like all the other colonizers. I'm here. I'm the good one. Um, yeah, I think you're you're probably smart not to talk about so much kind of just like yeah, it's it is high school stuff. I mean, yeah, on. it's it's child it's childlike. Um, it's fun to like make fun of, but it, it's not. It's kind of beneath my readership, I think. So, so I mean, you, what 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 will people? You see my drop, but what are you working on for as far as articles? Um, a lot of ideas. I have a lot of things coming um, because the Atlantic reached out to me about the refugee story and I got a good uh, son of a refugee co-author. Um, I, I did have to pause what was going to be my release. Um, I have a big publication coming out called The H History of Gentrification in Berkeley. Um, it's mm -hmm. going to be very informative if you're in Bay Area politics. This is basically your future. Oh, you, you got, you got um, a, like you, the, the census data dropped and you were like you were like digging into it within hours. Yeah, within hours. Um, I was on my vacation when that happened. But because oh, wow. I, I pretty, the date was supposed to happen, I, I swear to God, it was supposed to happen before I got after I got home from vacation. But it happened during. I was like, you know what? Screw it. Uh, just gotta sit here on the beach and just like ravage the, the freaking census while this is possible. Um, you know, I have an article on that coming up. I have an article coming up on um, a lot of good zoning changes that cities should incorporate. Um, I'm going to talk about. Uh, some of the problems I have with the equity community and their approach to traffic enforcement. Um, the fact that, and I'm saying that from the position of the person who uh, was one of the original ideas behind uh, de-policing traffic enforcement, how I think some of the equity community falls short um, in yep. their commitment to traffic safety in low-income areas. Um, and I'm going to have a complex conversation about like enforcement versus um, prevention and how I don't think that the equity community is very strong on prevention. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, I have a lot of articles coming up uh on a whole host of i can't you know there's kind of supposed to be surprises but uh, i have a lot of ideas in my head and um, i'm going to be writing them out soon uh, i'll let the listeners down that as daryl's saying this he's swinging around a pencil so you just can't stay away from that writing you know things, things yeah. are happening so. i was actually doodling i was drawing i was a good oh, artist wow. in high school that one they showed to me it's my pencil no i, I meant you the drawing if you had well, it you can't see it it's a doodle Oh well, okay. I didn't. Okay, sure. Okay, well, that's uh, that's all I had on the on the docket. So uh, yeah, any, any any closing thoughts? If just a little little nugget for listeners. Um, right now, I mean, you know, um, please stop emailing me telling me I was uh, quoted in the New York Times on the eviction moratorium. Um, I know this. Okay. <laughs> You don't think there's 500 other people? I didn't, they didn't ask me for permission. They just did it. And it's are not my like, opinion. Are these like old, old classmates trying to reconnect or something or what? No, it's, it's like tons of people who just like love telling me. I'm in the news all the time now. Like, I don't need to be reminded of when I'm in the news. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, that and please read my article. Don't cite my article as an argument. 
please consume the article and then actually argue it yourself. That's how you know when you're a good author versus just someone who is a sort of a lazy debater. Um, please do that. It's an, it's um, an argument dojo. Yes, that yeah. too. Um, also, you know, uh, play it chill. Um, people need to calm down. Uh, have civil discussions about housing. I like bashing on people. It's, it's fun every now and then, but ultimately it gets kind of tiresome after a while. Um, don't get caught up. Spots. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take yeah, yeah. Really pick them, man. Don't 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 waste your time arguing with people all the time. Um, talk to your neighbors about housing. That's always what's important. Um, have an open mind. Change your mind if facts change. Uh, don't be an ideologue and don't be someone who's stubborn. Um, you know, I'm, I hope those are my positive messages uh, to close out. But uh, that's all I got to say. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for making the time. What's more, and uh, yeah, uh, check out the Substack. Substack. Uh, it is. Uh, Errolowens.substack.com. That's right. Incredible. Well, uh, yeah, until next time. Yep. Thanks, Mark. See ya. We have been talking to Daryl Owens all about California politics, housing production, and vacancy rates. You can find his Substack linked to in the episode description. And actually, since this is recorded, he's uh, put another article out as well as the Atlantic article has dropped. So you can feel free to check that out. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keys Issue, Stanford. <laughs>